1 Kings chapter 21. We begin in verse 17, and again, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dogs shall eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his word for his name's sake. Amen. We noted in our last study of Elijah two weeks ago that in the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, Elijah drops out of sight completely. We haven't seen him, so to speak, since that scene in chapter 19 in the cave at Mount Horeb, the Mount of the Covenant, where he was so discouraged and so thought that all was lost that he wanted the Lord to take his life. The Lord assured him that all was not lost and that the cause of the Lord's kingdom advances even when we're tempted to think otherwise. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth which hath not kissed him, the Lord says to his servant in chapter 19 and verse 18. You may recall also from our last study that I pointed out that there's a marginal reading for verse 18 that suggests an alternate reading 
which could read something to this effect, that the Lord had not left himself 7,000, but that the Lord would in the near future leave to himself 7,000. That would be true to the Lord, and that wouldn't compromise with Baal worship. Now, it might not be through spectacular displays such as what took place on Mount Carmel when the prophet called fire down from heaven that the Lord's cause would advance. It would advance rather when through that still small voice of God's Spirit, a remnant would be moved to be true to the Lord and not go with the flow, so to speak, of what was popular or with what received government sanction. Baal worship was still largely the state religion, but that didn't mean that the Lord's kingdom would not advance. And although Elijah is not mentioned in the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, his influence is nevertheless clearly manifested. For in the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, we read of the work of prophets that are unnamed, and we learn of an association of prophets. That association is called the sons of the prophets in verse 35. So the work of Elijah, who at this point is accompanied by Elisha, is progressing. This becomes even more apparent when you come to 2 Kings chapter 3, where you read of the sons of the prophets at Bethel and at Jericho, 50 of them being on hand to watch Elijah and Elisha proceed to the Jordan River, where Elijah would be taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. It seems that uh, the remnant was being reached, and that prophets were Uh, ministering throughout the land. And so we find examples of schools of prophets in various locations in chapter 20. But now we come to the 21st chapter of 1 Kings, and we find Elijah on the scene again. And we see that familiar phrase that governed him in everything that he did and in every place that he went. You remember the phrase? It's found in chapter 21, verse 17, and it reads like this, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying... That's the phrase that governed everything that Elijah did and every place that Elijah went, with one exception. We don't read that the word of the Lord came to Elijah, telling him to flee from Jezebel. That's the one noted exception. And so it becomes apparent at once, doesn't it, that Elijah is back on track in his ministry following the word of the Lord. And just as the word of the Lord directed Elijah to Ahab back in chapter 17, where we read of Elijah's initial appearance to Ahab, and just as the word of the Lord directed him to Ahab in chapter 18, leading to that showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal, where Elijah would call down fire from heaven, So now in chapter 21, Elijah is called on by the Lord to go to King Ahab yet again, this time to announce his doom 
as well as the doom of his wicked wife Jezebel. Note the words of verses 18 and 19. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. This is the Lord now speaking to Elijah. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it, and thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Here you see the prophet called upon again to go and confront this king, who by this time was very well aware of Elijah, who he was and what he had done. What I want to call your attention to this morning, therefore, is simply this. The lessons learned from Naboth's vineyard. This was the place where Elijah met Ahab again and pronounced his doom. The lessons learned from Naboth's vineyard. And let's think first of all that there is a very clear lesson that we can all take to heart that we would do well to heed. And the lesson is simply this. Beware of the sin of covetousness. Beware of the sin of covetousness. We have the account of the beginning of Ahab's covetousness in the first two verses in the chapter. Look at those verses again with me. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. On the surface of it, I suppose you could say that Ahab's desire for Naboth's vineyard would seem legitimate, and his proposal to trade for it or purchase it might seem well and good. The law of God, however, forbids such a sale. Listen to this explanation given by a commentator. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown. We read there, in persisting in his refusal, Naboth was not actuated by any feelings of disloyalty or disrespect to the king, but solely from a conscientious regard to the divine law, which for important reasons had prohibited the sale of paternal inheritance. You may see Leviticus 25, verse 23, as well as Numbers 36 and verse 7 to bear that out. Or if, through extreme poverty or debt, an assignation of it to another was unavoidable, the conveyance was made on the condition of its being redeemable at any time. In other words, if under uh, difficult economic circumstances, uh, the need did arise for uh, a man's inheritance to be sold, that man would nevertheless have the right to redeem it back to himself and to his family at any time he would be able to. And for that, you may consult Leviticus 25 
verses 25 through 27. At all events of its reverting at the Jubilee to the owner, Leviticus 25, 28. In short, it could not be alienated from the family, and it was on this ground that Naboth refused to comply with the king's demand. Now, have you ever noticed in young children that there are times when you deny them something, it only aggravates their desire all the more to have it? Ever seen that happen in your kids? My, how Ahab comes to resemble a little child in this instance. His childish nature is made very plain in the words of verse 4. Here is Ahab's reaction now to the denial by Naboth. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Could anything seem more juvenile? Uh, a man, a, a grown man, and a ruler and a king who pouts like a little kid, refuses to eat, goes to his bed, probably faces the wall, and won't even speak to anybody because he couldn't have his way. Can you think of a more vivid description of juvenile, childlike behavior in all of Scripture? Matthew Henry's comment is striking on this passage. Listen to what he writes. Discontent is a sin that is its own punishment and makes men torment themselves. Isn't that the truth of the matter? My, how fretful we can become when our desires are so firmly set on something, we can hardly even function when, for reasons that may be beyond us, God in his sovereign wisdom sees fit for a time to withhold something from us. Matthew Henry continues, it is a sin that is its own parent. It arises not from the condition, but from the mind. As we find Paul contented in a prison, so Ahab was discontented in a palace. He had all the delights of Canaan, that pleasant land at command, the wealth of a kingdom, the pleasures of a court, and the honors and powers of a throne, yet all avails him nothing without Naboth's vineyard. Wrong desires expose men to continual vexations, and those that are disposed to fret, however well off, may always find something or other to fret at. So says Matthew Henry. And I find it especially striking how Matthew Henry draws the contrast between the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison and King Ahab in a king's palace. It was from a Roman prison, you may recall, that Paul would write to the Philippians, his letter to them would amount to an extended thank you note for a contribution they had sent to him to help him with his temporal needs. Listen to how Paul thanks them. This is in Philippians 4, now beginning in verse 10, where Paul writes, 
but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now, let me stop and pause right there before I even go further and remember the setting. This is a prison epistle. Paul has been apprehended. Paul has been unfairly treated. Paul is in prison, a place where he doesn't belong, where justice would not have put him. But there he is nevertheless, and he can nevertheless say, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want. And let me pause there again to point out that Paul was not feeling uh, any sense of desperation, even in whatever deprived condition he found himself in jail. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What a contrast to the king of Israel. Not a shred of covetousness at all in Paul's place. No envy for those who uh, were not sharing the same kind of fate that he suffered from. And it was certainly from his own personal experience that Paul could write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6 and say to him that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that statement for a moment and then tie it back to 1 Kings 21 to the case of King Ahab. I summarized for you in our last study all the ways in which God had demonstrated to Ahab that he, Jehovah God, was the Lord. That had been proven to Ahab by the drought in the beginning of chapter 17 when Elijah, and he makes it very plain at the very get-go in his initial appearance on whose behalf he appears. He was there on behalf of the Lord, announcing to Ahab, no rain but at my word. And so you could say that it had been proven to Ahab in that instance who ruled in heaven, and certainly by the fire that was called down by Elijah in chapter, eight, uh, chapter 18. And you recall that when Elijah prayed, the desire behind his prayer was, Lord, show this people that everything that I have done, I have done at thy bidding, by thy word, so that they may know that thou art Lord who rules in heaven. And you know the story, the fire fell and the people fell on their faces and acknowledge that the Lord was God. So that had been a demonstration to Ahab that the Lord is God. And the ending of the drought by a torrential downpour proved to Ahab who ruled in the heavens. And if that was not enough, God had given to Ahab the victory over the Syrians, and this we found in our last study in chapter 20, not once, but twice. 
you would think that with all he possessed and with all the grace of God that he had known, you would think that Ahab wouldn't have found it so challenging to find contentment. But instead, we find him behaving like a juvenile who's just been denied his third helping of candy and ice cream. It's with good reason, you know, that the Lord Jesus warned his followers to take heed and beware of covetousness. In Luke 12 and verse 15, it will dominate you if you let it, and it will turn you into a childish and immature brat. In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, we're exhorted by the author of that epistle to let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. And then he follows up that statement by establishing the basis that actually makes it possible for the believer to let his conversation, and his conversation, recall, means his conduct, his behavior, he is given the basis for what makes that possible. Listen to what he goes on to say. For he has said, the Lord has said, Christ has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Oh, you may lose much in the current state of things in this world, but you will never lose Christ. Or you may be denied things in this present world, things that in themselves may be perfectly legitimate, but you will never be denied Christ. One of the greatest fears I have for my own soul and for Christians in general these days is the fear that we have this awful tendency to take the blessings of Christ so much for granted that we practically consider them to be insignificant. Oh, may the Lord remind us all, therefore, that we are bountifully blessed in Christ and that our blessings are very expensive blessings. They cost Christ his lifeblood to secure them for us. And may we be mindful of how unworthy we are of the least of these blessings. And in the process, may God grant to us patience and contentment. So there's a lesson from Naboth's vineyard concerning covetousness. Would you consider with me next that there's a lesson from Naboth's vineyard concerning sin? And the lesson is simply this. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. I draw the words for this heading right from the words of Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23, where Moses warns the children of Reuben and Gad that if they failed to cross Jordan and do their part with the rest of the tribes of Israel to help them conquer the land of Canaan, then they would be guilty of sin and they could be assured that their sin would find them out. And doesn't King Ahab very vividly illustrate such a truth for us. Though the plot was conceived and put in motion by his wicked consort Jezebel, yet Ahab was undoubtedly complicit in the plot. 
If he knew anything about his wife, he would know that she would use whatever means were necessary to get what she wanted. I suspect that the elders and nobles in Naboth City must have known it too, for we don't find them offering any resistance to Jezebel's scheme. What Ahab failed to take into account, however, is that all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knew all about this plot. He knew exactly where to send his servant Elijah in order to find Ahab. Look again at the words of verses 17 and 18. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. That makes it pretty plain, doesn't it? What God knew. And when Elijah met Ahab in the vineyard of Naboth, he exposed Ahab's sin in much the same fashion as an earlier prophet had exposed King David's sin against Bathsheba. So Elijah spells it out in verse 19. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? Very obvious, isn't it, that Elijah is not speculating or inquiring about the matter, nor is he speaking on his own behalf. He's making it very apparent to Ahab that the Lord knows. The Lord knows that Naboth was plotted against, and the Lord knows that Naboth was murdered, and the Lord knows that Ahab had stolen Naboth's vineyard. The Lord knows it all. That only stands to reason, doesn't it, since the Lord is omniscient, all-knowing? Listen to how the psalmist describes the wicked. This is found in Psalm 10, beginning in verse 5. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth and waits secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. That's the rationale of the sinner, isn't it? That's the rationale of those that Forget or simply dismiss the truth that God is all-knowing. Ahab was certainly convinced of that, wasn't he? God has forgotten. He doesn't care, or he doesn't know. He doesn't see it. How shocked he must have been at the very appearance of Elijah on that occasion. 
The last word Elijah had for him was that there was the sound of abundance of rain. Now his word to him from the Lord was to announce his doom. Verse 20, And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And let me pause there long enough to point out that we certainly know Ahab's spiritual condition, don't we? He saw the fire fall. He knew of the drought. He saw the fire fall. He knew who reigned, and yet he still regards the servant of the Lord as his enemy. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he, Elijah, answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Abijah, or Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. Jezebel's doom is also foretold by the prophet. And so we may conclude from this section of God's word that there is no hiding sin from God, and the soul that sinneth, it shall die. May not happen immediately. Reminded of that word of Paul to Timothy, some men's sins go beforehand, others follow after, which is an indication that uh, judgment against that sin may not fall immediately, but it will come, it will fall, and it cannot be hidden from God. The soul that sins is doomed. It's a solemn lesson and one that we need to remind ourselves of often because every time we sin, we display the same kind of attitude as the wicked in Psalm 10 or as Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21. So there's a lesson pertaining to covetousness. There's a lesson pertaining to sin being discovered. Let's consider finally, and this is perhaps the most amazing lesson of all in the narrative, that there's a lesson from the account of Naboth's vineyard pertaining to grace. A lesson from Naboth's vineyard pertaining to grace. And the lesson could be expressed this way. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Amazingly enough, this is what we find Ahab doing once Elijah has announced his doom. Look at the words of verses 27 to 29. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Now I think it's very important here that we don't read more into Ahab's humility than we should. We certainly don't find him manifesting the same kind of spirit 
say of Zacharias, or Zacchaeus rather. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 8, this is Zacchaeus speaking, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. We don't have any indication in the narrative, do we, that Ahab restored anything to anyone. What does become apparent, though, is that he does humble himself before the Lord, which is certainly a kind of acknowledgement that he was worthy of the doom that was pronounced on him. He's not arguing against that now. He's owning it. And for that humility, he gains a reprieve from the judgment of God. Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? The Lord says to Elijah, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Now when you consider the character of Ahab and what has been up to this point, the hardness of his heart, we can't help but be astonished at the greatness of God's grace and even granting this wicked king a reprieve from the judgment he deserved. Arguably, you could say that he manifests an even greater manifestation of grace that was yet to come. When at last Christ appeared on the scene of this world, we're told by John in the prologue of his gospel that the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, literally grace upon grace, John writes. And the formula for grace in Peter's epistles goes like this. I've referred to this at times as the mathematics of grace. When Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord in 2 Peter 1, 2. There's something, you know, that we need to note with regard to King Ahab. And that's our resemblance to him. Striking but true. We have a resemblance to this wicked king. I was amazed to discover a cross-reference to a statement used to describe Ahab in the New Testament. Look first with me at the words in 1 Kings 21 and verse 20. It says, And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee. And then note this, Because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Now look a little further down at the words of the narrator, the author of 1 Kings. This is in verse 25 of that same chapter. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, which, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. In the margin of my Bible, I find a cross-reference to the only verse in the New Testament that resembles such a phrase 
sold thyself to work evil. It's found in Romans chapter 7 and verse 14, where Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There's the cross reference. I am carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. So you see a resemblance here. You see a connection we can make. Paul is describing the carnal nature that abides yet in the believer. It's the presence of this carnal nature that brings us to a kind of resemblance to King Ahab. It's this carnal nature that compels Paul to say in Romans 7 that the things he would do, he finds himself not doing, and the things that he wouldn't do, he finds himself doing. I find then a law, he writes in Romans 7 and verse 21, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. What is it then that enables you and me to overcome this resemblance to Ahab? This resemblance that leads us to covetousness and leads us to the same kind of wretchedness that Paul assigns to himself in that seventh chapter of Romans. Well, the thing that enables us to overcome this resemblance is just this. It's the multiplied grace of God that's found in Christ. That's how we break the resemblance. Ahab gains a reprieve from judgment But on account of Christ's meritorious life and atoning death, Paul could go on to write, and this is so key, I I, I remark on this probably every time I refer to it, that uh, divisions in the New Testament uh, are the result of man-made editorizing. Uh, In the original, there are no chapter divisions And so there is a very close connection between Romans 7 and Romans 8. And it is after Paul uh, raises almost an expression of despair. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We go on to read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Ahab could gain a reprieve. We've gained much more than that on account of Christ. And the reason that there's no condemnation is because there has already been condemnation. Christ was condemned in our place. Christ propitiated the wrath of God. Christ satisfied divine justice for us. And what's more, Christ has purchased us to himself and brought us into the very family of God. So while there's a resemblance between King Ahab and our carnal natures, there's also a stark contrast. 
You have been justified by faith. You have been reconciled to God. And because of the Spirit's work in your heart, you are no longer at enmity with God. You've surrendered to Christ. You're no longer considering God to be your enemy the way Ahab did. Nor uh, does the believer uh, consider himself, consider God to be his enemy. You belong to him. He belongs to you. And through his word and by his spirit and with humbleness and praise and thanksgiving, we become more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. So break the resemblance. Don't let it dominate you. Covetousness is a terrible sin. It'll turn you into a juvenile brat. But instead, submit yourself to God. Humble yourself under his mighty hand and look to Christ, who is the source, the inexhaustible source of all grace and condemnation is gone. And we walk in praise and thanksgiving. So what are the lessons of Naboth's vineyard? They are these. Beware of covetousness. Know that sin will find you out. And rejoice and be glad that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, and bring this meeting to a close. We thank thee for amazing grace. We thank thee for full, free, and sovereign grace. We would not be so arrogant, O Lord, as to suggest like the Pharisee did, that he was grateful not to be like that publican. Lord, may we not enter into thy presence with such an attitude that says, Lord, I, I thank thee that I'm not like Ahab. Oh, Lord, sadly, I have to admit that too often I am. But, Lord, we thank thee for grace. We thank thee for Christ. We thank thee that there's no condemnation to those that are joined to Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that in humble praise and thanksgiving, we may be more than conquerors even of our carnal natures, which we know, Lord, that we have to fight against constantly. Oh, Lord, make us more than conquerors through him that loved us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.